Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Even though we all logically know that grief and loss are part of the universal human experience that we all have to go through, it still catches us off guard. I don't know anybody who looks forward to it or wants to lose the people that are the most important to them or be injured or have some unexpected surprise change their life suddenly. Even though these things happen to us on a regular basis, most of us struggle to know how to respond. Most of us struggle to know how to respond to those we love who are going through grief and loss. None of us are really alone in facing grief and loss, but we can feel so alone and uncertain when we don't know how to talk about it, when we don't know how to respond to it. So we wanted to record an episode today talking about what are some of the healthiest ways to respond to unexpected events, to respond to grief and loss. And we thought, you know, this would be a great topic for a comedian. I'm not kidding. We actually found a comedian to come on and talk about it today. Now, she's not just going to tell a bunch of jokes and superficially bypass this whole issue. She's actually going to tell her story, which is actually not very funny. But the way that she and her husband dealt with his terminal diagnosis of ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, has inspired people all over the world. They did it with grace and humor. They did it with openness and joy. And of course, they did it with all the other hard stuff that we, anybody would expect in this situation. The tears, the bargaining, the denial, the anger, and all the other human experiences. But there's something about the way that they went through this that is so inspiring to me and to my wife personally, and also to so many other people, because it's not a very typical way of going through something like this. Most people suffer through these things privately, and we don't really get to see it, but both of them had very high profile positions as actors and comedians and writers and directors and producers. And, and they were able to share their journey and talk about this very openly while her husband, Christopher, was still alive. And since his passing almost two years ago in uh, June of 2020, uh, she has continued to speak and talk about her experiences. And she's been very open with her grief process. Our guest today is Lisa Valentine Clark, and she is an actor, writer, producer, and the radio host of The Lisa Show on BYU Radio. She also was one of the hosts on BYU TV's Random Acts and has also done a lot of improvisational comedy for decades now. And she just does a lot of great work in both film and television and radio. And it's just a real honor to have her here on the show today to talk about 
how she and her husband grappled with the discovery of this diagnosis and then how to manage everything that comes along with it all the way through his passing and beyond. And it's just such a personal and sacred experience that I'm so glad she's willing to openly talk about with so many people because all of us need inspiration. All of us need support and strength and courage to deal with the unexpected. And Lisa and Christopher did that in such a beautiful way. So we're excited to have her on the podcast today to talk about grief and loss. And we're going to do this in a couple of different parts. Uh, She was gracious enough to be willing to come back in the future to talk more specifically around how this applies to betrayal trauma. But in this episode today, we're going to focus specifically just on the idea of dealing with the unexpected, dealing with grief and loss, how we can do that with grace and with humor and community. Here's our interview with Lisa Valentine Clark. Well, Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. We're so excited you're here. This is going to be great. So we'll just say right out the gate here that our 13-year-old daughter had never seen the chat books commercials. Oh, right. And a couple of days ago, we showed her and she asked us if she could watch them like three or four times. She was laughing so hard. <laughs> was so oh, that's fun. awesome. I love hearing that. Oh, good. Her favorite part in the whole thing, she she just kept repeating it over and over, was was uh, in the, ver- the original one where the girl asks where babies come from and you do kind of the standoff what? and then you run what? off. What? She just thought that was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Just pretend like you didn't hear that question. That's right. We're just going to pretend yeah. that didn't that's happen. That's a great tip. Great, great tactic. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it's great to have you here. I, I know that you've spent, you know, so much of your career just writing, producing, directing, acting, and and so much of it's been comedic, right? Improv, comedy, and so on. And and uh, just brought so much laughter and mm-hmm. playfulness to so many people's lives. And and then in your own life, of course, why we're here talking today in your own life, the most unfunny thing happened, you know, seven years ago, eight, six, seven years ago when Christopher was diagnosed with ALS. And yet you guys as a family, as a couple, and even, even him individually found a way to as the the article in BYU magazine that we'll we'll post in the show notes talks about, right? There's there was permission to laugh still with this really terrible thing that for most people is almost unspeakable, mm-hmm. and yet you guys are able to find a way to inspire so many people through your own tragedy. You know, we've already introduced a little bit in the introduction about just the fact that that you know that he had passed away from ALS, but I, we'd love to hear just a, for our listeners just a little intro to your story and. As much as you want to share about about that, and then and then we'll dive into talking about humor. Sure. So my husband and I were married in 1995. We met in college at BYU doing an English society, so for English majors, play about the Bible. That's how we met. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> were these really like interesting vignettes of like Bible scenes. And he'd just gotten back from his LDS mission in Finland. He was on an acting scholarship. I was an English major and he was cast as Satan and I was cast as a chicken on Noah's Ark. (laughs) And that's when we met. And And you really stood out from the flock, it sounds like. (laughs) It was so stupid. But we like took it so seriously because we were just, you know, really in the text. And um, (laughs) anyway, we were friends for a a little while. Then we started dating and we just, just had a a great, 
great marriage. We had five kids. He got a master's degree in staging Shakespeare in Exeter, England, and a PhD in theater. And I had, you know, birthed and raised five children and wrote and had become a teacher and did some online teaching and then had a sort of kind of an accidental career out of my hobby of doing improv and started doing movies and TV and commercials and things. And we were just living the life. Our kids were eight to 18, five at home, mm-hmm. all at home. Chris had just won a Kennedy Center Award for his directing and wow. was a tenured professor at the Utah Valley University, had started a, a London study abroad program that he went to every summer and that I went with him every other summer. And then we were starting to take our kids one by one on and just living our lives. And in 2016, at the height, literally of his like physical health was diagnosed with a rare terminal disease, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm -hmm. And the average life expectancy of someone with that disease was two to five years. And we didn't see it coming. And we're absolutely just gobsmacked (laughs) by it. And then our lives were never the same. And everything changed after that diagnosis. You know, for a couple of weeks, we just didn't really say anything. And then we had to start telling everybody and we had to tell our kids, which was one of the worst experiences of my life. And they were all on different levels of understanding. And he lived triumphantly and with humor and grace and dignity and some of our favorite memories for four and a half years, which is quite remarkable. And unfortunately passed away on June 5th of 2020 in the height of a (sighs) global pandemic. (sighs) After taking care of him by myself uh, with the help of our oldest son because of COVID and when he needed just absolute care, 24-hour constant care for the pre, you know, for most of his diagnosis. By the time he passed away, he couldn't move or or speak at all. But we had, he had a a good death, which, you know, Mm -hmm. we can talk about what that means. I know it seems like an oxymoron, but he... I'm just so proud of him. He just did an amazing job as a husband and as a father, as a friend, as a human in uh, expressing his life. It's changed a lot of lives, just the way that he handled that. And so now it has been almost two years since he passed away and everything's different, not to be too dramatic. And my kids are now 14 to 24. Right. And in the, you know, and in the last, well, in the first like year after he passed, three of my kids launched and left home and were adults. And it's been a lot of, and I've changed careers and, you know, life has pivoted, pivoted, pivoted at a constant pace. And here we are. Here we are. 2022. (laughs) Well, you made it. (laughs) Did I though? No, just kidding. I made it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you and made it. Now I'm here. I was at one place and now I'm over here on this other place. And, you know, we can talk about a lot of things when people say, hey, what is the story? I think, oh, there's just so many stories within the story. I think now I, I'm feeling so tender because a couple of my kids are, are leaving the state. They're getting revved to do that. That's a huge, big change. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm coming up on the second anniversary of all these big decisions in his death. I'm feeling very nostalgic. And so when I think, well, you know, what's happened and what's the story, I refuse to believe that 
his life and his story and our lives together and our family is anything less than just like a beautiful love story of just, you know, no matter what happens in life, just being connected, like as that family and, and seeing the evidence of it, I feel like that's the story, you know, that triumph. And, and I know a lot of people look at my life and they feel really bad for me and they should. Let's get that straight. Should feel bad for me. Make no mistake. But it's my life isn't a tragedy, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. I've known great love and service and I have an amazing family. And that's just, this is a part of our story. Right. And I remember, I I think it was in the BYU article where they, I think you said that he always wanted people to know that ALS was the least interesting thing about him. Yeah. He was like, like, don't make me the poster boy for ALS. I mean, yes, I have this horrible disease, but like, I'm also really handsome and really funny, (laughs) really (laughs) smart. Like he's like, let's talk about all the good things about me. You You know, and he would love it that we were talking about him and talking about, you know, his theater directing and talking about him as a dad and what a good husband he was. Like, those are the things that he, that he had really great taste in music. You know, he, Mm. those are the things that he would love. Mm -hmm. The things that people see when there's not a disease, the things that people can enjoy and appreciate when there isn't kind of an, you know. And that's the essence of who he is. Yeah. We're not, we're not the worst thing that happens to us. We're not the biggest mistakes and or tragedies, you know, we're, we're so much more than that. Right. And even up to the end, right? I mean, we we watched the Frankenstein thing on Instagram yeah. with our kids laughing. I mean, it, it's just like <laughs> the most ridiculous thing. It's so funny. It's so stupid. Your voice is going. It's so sad. Like we're all crying. You can't play the piano anymore because your fingers don't work. You can't walk. So we're going to just dress you up like Frankenstein because <laughs> that's how your voice has that ice cream voice. Like, And you're going to laugh and try to like sing a song because you can't sing. I had a a birthday party for him where it was an opposite talent show where you had to come and do something that you're really bad at. So because, because he was losing his voice and it was so sad and he was like, I don't want people coming over to our house for a birthday party and being like crying. Cause like I'm doing so bad. He's like, everybody has to come doing something horrible. So he wanted to sing the little mermaid. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, great pick. (laughs) And he couldn't sing. And he's got this voice, again, the Frankenstein voice, you know, and he couldn't keep up with it because his muscles were slowing down. And we were all crying. We were laughing so hard, you know, and we had like, like, I'll never forget, like Caitlin, I don't know if you know, Caitlin Conley is a good friend of ours and she is an artist. She's like this really beautiful painter. So super talented. And her husband, Robbie Conley plays in the Killers band, right? So he's Uh super talented. So she comes and she's like, well, I'm going to do it a basketball routine and she gets his basketball <laughs> and she's like trying to like shoot. It was so funny because it was all these super talented people that came over to our house and purposefully did things that they were horrible at. It was, my sister did stand up comedy. <laughs> it was painful. It was so bad. <laughs> it was just, but a night where everybody did something that they were really bad at. And that oh, it like encapsulates like what you do. What do you do when you can't speak and move anymore? You make fun of it and you laugh at it and you ask your friends to laugh with you. And that's, yeah. that's who Chris Clark was. So, wow. man. So I'm so curious, was there a, a time when this became a very deliberate choice for you or was it just pretty natural and organic? It was different for me than it was for Chris. This is who Chris was. I remember mm-hmm. when he was first diagnosed and people didn't know yet. He was just kind of it took a while to diagnose because it's like the worst disease. Yeah. And doctors don't want to be the one that say, well, I think this is what it is because you just have to rule it out. So during that time, it was, 
you know, I was absolutely in shock, trauma, had my first panic attack, like, because I did, I was keeping this all in trying to decide what do we do now? Because once you say it out loud, it's real. And and I knew once we told people he had the terminal disease, everyone was going to treat us differently for the rest of our lives. And I knew my lives would never be the same. And so I was carrying this burden around. And I remember soon after he was like, I was supposed to go out of town to do a job, to do an acting job. And he was going to like a friend's wedding. And this was like, you know, like two weeks after we knew and we hadn't told anybody. And I was like, well, what are we going to do? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I can't go out of town to my job and you can't go to this wedding. And he was like, why not? What else would we do? And I was like, well, it's just like, this is, we're in the middle of an emergency. This is a tragedy. This is awful. I'm sick to my stomach. And he was just like, oh, no, 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 Lisa. We are, what, like he literally said, are we just going to stay in bed all day and cry? And I was like, yeah, I think. I (laughs) I think that's how we handle these things. I know. I think this is what you do. And no one would like fault us for like, yeah, we probably should do that. And he was like, oh, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is not, no, I am not that guy. I am not staying in bed to cry all day. Like I'll spend 10 to 15 minutes feeling sorry for myself. I'll cry about that. But then like go to work. You do too. He's like, we don't know. This is going to be a long disease. I mean, we didn't know. That's the thing. It's like, well, could we live with this for 10 years or could he'd be dead in in six months and no one could tell us. That's why, I mean, there's no way to tell. They don't know anything about this disease. And he was like, I'm not doing, I'm going to the wedding and I think you should get on that plane. And I was like, okay. And it was kind of, he set the tone for it because he was the one carrying this, right? Yeah, for sure. The kids, you know, at first, and it's funny talking to them now, they're like, we remember when you told us that, but we were just we didn't get it. Like my 18 year old got it, but everybody sure. else, none of the other kids got it. And they were just looking at their dad like, well, he looks fine. He sounds the same. He's fine. Yep. Can we go play Super Mario Brothers? Like, mm-hmm. right. Serious, but like, what are you talking about? And so we all followed his, his lead and his lead was, I'm just going to keep doing living life as much as I can. Oh, and now I can't do that. Well, I'm just going to, I can't walk anymore. Okay. Well now I'm just going to go in a wheelchair, but I'm just going to keep focusing on what I can do, which is being a good dad, being a good father, being a theater director, acting, whatever I can do until I can't do it anymore. And instead of bemoaning that, I'm going to keep looking forward. So, you know, by the time he passed away, he was in pre-production for two different like productions, different musicals. He was writing two plays. He planned this really big surprise for our 25th wedding anniversary, two days before he died. And you know, and he was like the at-home teacher for our for our kids because again, it was during COVID. And he's like, okay, well, I'll teach them, you know, theater and seminary. I'll, that's that's what I'll do. And so he was doing those things when he died. And I think that's the best way to say, you know, how did he plan? He was just living until you know we had to have that conversation. Oh yeah, you're not breathing anymore. So very well. This is this is really hard. So he didn't spend a lot of time bemoaning that fact. And uh, that was such a gift that he left us. So it's easier for you to make the choice to follow his lead on there because he's the, he's the one obviously with the disease and the conscious choice of, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess you could stay in bed while he was up making (laughs) things happen. (laughs) I mean, you could, I would just be crying because he's so such a sweetheart and he'd be like, why are you crying? And I'd be like, Oh, 
remember how you have a terminal disease, you dummy? And he's yeah. like, oh, that? You're still crying about that? I mean, <laughs> and I mean, he did break down a few times, of course, like everyone is human, but it's just yeah. not as often as I would have if I were in his place. Mm-hmm. And then I think most people would. And he just yeah. had this like, I didn't do anything wrong. This is obviously like the plan for my life. You know, he's very, you know, really had a, a belief in, in God and a personal plan for him. And he was like, this is the plan then. So I'll be able to, yep. to fulfill it because this I, is it. yeah, because this is it. This is our life. This is happening. This was meant to be. So because of how serious this, this is and was when it first, you know, you first had to start telling people, were people kind of weirded out by maybe how comfortable he was like laughing about this or talking about it this way? Yeah, for sure. You know, we would tell friends and he would make jokes like when he told his brothers. And and of course, some of that is shock, right? Like you're in a trauma response and you're just making inappropriate jokes because that's your default, right? And we had to allow for that, but he didn't want to live in that. He didn't want people to treat him precious. And he would tell his, his close siblings and his close friends, he'd say, you know, I know my hands look weird and I can't speak very well or like, but please treat me the same. You can give me as many regular days and treat me the same. And we can laugh about how you have to like pick me up and put me in the car and Mm -hmm. how I, you know, my legs don't work or what we can joke about it, but just treat me regular. Don't treat me like, how are you? And like special and things like precious. I love that word. Don't try to treat me precious. That's gross. Yeah. Just treat me like your friend. And so, well, you know, yeah. his friends did. They picked him up to take him to guys night, movie night. You know, a couple of his friends wanted to take him on like trips and I'd get so nervous. Like, do you know how to take care of this or that or the other? And before it got really, really bad, like before he had a feeding tube and he was attached to a lot of wires before that, you know, he, d- he still wanted to travel and things and it was really difficult, but it was a group effort and we all just sort of laughed about it. Mm-hmm. And because humor, I mean, humor is really about, God. right. I mean, humor is about laughing at the absurdity of the, of the present, right? I mean, there's yeah. so much, so right? many I mean, absurd things <laughs> just in regular life that yeah. are just ironic, yes. silly, crazy. Yeah. And it's not disrespectful and it takes nothing away from an awful, cruel disease to make fun of it, you know? Yeah. Seriously. So yeah, he gave it, it was, it was a good way to not only respond to it, but also to model to his kids. And I think to his friends, certainly, of course, to me about how you handle the unexpected that life throws all of us, you know, in varying degrees, right? Yeah. And in your your BYU devotional that you gave, is that what that's called? Yeah. yeah. We both watched that and loved it. And you reference in there, you know, the yes and, and, and really building on the whole improv idea of an offering that you get. And sometimes you get really awesome offerings and sometimes you get really crappy ones. And yet it's your turn to respond regardless. And the yes and, can you, can you speak to our audience about this concept for those of uh, who maybe haven't seen your presentation on that, just really what that idea is about sure. how to handle stuff, the unexpected? Well, so yes and has become, so I do improvisational theater. And so yes and has become the, just the lens that I see the world. It's certainly how I see things like I don't want to do. When you're in a scene, all you have is uh, an improv is, you know, you start with two people on a stage and you've gotten a suggestion and it's just random, right? And you're trying to create something. So an action or a character to move it forward. 
and there's one rule in improv that everyone knows, which is, is no, no denying. You just don't deny. So if somebody comes up and says, Hey mom, can I, will you hand me the scissors? You don't say, I'm not your mom. <laughs> you've just denied that they've given you an offering that like, we are making a scene, a story out of absolutely nothing. I'm going to make you a mother. That's an offering. And it could be a good one, a bad one. It doesn't matter. But a, a stronger choice in improv, and you don't want to play with those people either that are always like, I'm not your mom. I'm a monkey. Don't, don't you recognize me? <laughs> We've been living, you know, here for 12 yeah. years. And you're like, okay, I guess you're going to like write the whole thing. It's just not fun. It's not, you're not mm-hmm. playing. So a better offering, a yes and is, hey, mom, will you hand me those scissors? And and then for me just to say anything, like it just to respond, but to yes, and then add something. So I say like, yeah, I'm your mother. Like, hey, honey, you've got to remember if I give you these scissors, then don't run with them like last time. So yes, I'm your mom and I've given you more information. I've given you a backstory that, that I'm hesitant to because you typically run with scissors all of the time. I've given them something, an idea or an action to take and then add to it. That's how you build story. That's how you build something interesting that people, you know, that you're leaning in like, where is this going to go? And you don't know where it's going. Just like life. We have the illusion of control until we don't, you know, that diagnosis gave me the idea. Oh, I don't. We have all these plans and dreams and life is like, no, you don't get any of those plans or dreams. I mean, I had sacrificed time, money, talents, everything for my dream of this kind of life. And now I don't, not only do I not have a hope for it, I absolutely know I will never have it. Right. It's over. Yeah. All my hopes and dreams done. And it's like, whew, that is not a great offering. Now I can sit and stay in my bed and cry all day and listen. I have those days where I guess we all have that, but I'm not getting stuck in that. And I'm saying, okay, so I don't get that, but what do I have right now? It helps you sort of like live in the present. The only way that you can do improvisation, and I'm convinced the only way that you can be happy is to live in the here and now. We have hopes and dreams. We have an idea of where we think the story is going because that helps us to make interesting offerings and more informed and and funnier. And, you know, you have to be think like be present but you have to be present with the actual offering that you get and not your idea of what it should be like. Oh, you know, this would have been better if instead of saying you, you, you used to run with it, if you would have, you know, said, hey, I want to cut out this this pattern or something like you have. The, if they had had this idea of how they wanted yeah. it to go and kept fighting with me about my offering again, not interesting and not helpful. You know, those people who get we all know somebody and maybe we've been this person who gets stuck at a moment of like, but, you know, never got over an event, you know, mm-hmm. a cause that they didn't get into or a dream they didn't get or, you know, the marriage that didn't work out, whatever it is and like real life, but just stay in that. I didn't get this offering instead of saying, this is what my life looks now and this is how I'm going to add to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the whole idea, I think, with yes and is that you could get the worst offering. I certainly got the worst offering for me, but living in the past doesn't honor my husband. It doesn't honor our life together. He'd be super mad if I just stayed in bed all day and and cried. (laughs) And I know he'd be mad at me. You know what I mean? And then it's not a way to honor and it's not fair for my kids. It's not good for me. And it's not just a way to, you know, to talk about grief and pain, but also like if I just live as if I'm living plan B and not plan A, it affects how I feel about myself, how I feel about life how I view other people, it affects everything. And so if 
and I don't want to underestimate in the yes and like how hard that is to like yeah. hold it. Like I accept this is my life and now I will move forward. Yeah. I, I can see how you, as you're describing it, how much faith and courage it takes to allow your plan A to move and create an actual plan A out of something that you never wanted or intended or, you know, expected. Yeah. It's a mind game, I think. Cause you know, it's like, oh, where did something went wrong? And I'm living my wrong life. If Chris were still alive, we would be doing X, Y, Z. My life would look like X, Y, Z. That is not a happy place to live in. I've lived there and I've tried it out. I vacationed on (laughs) different timelines. It does not bring you, it makes you feel small and powerless and depressed. But in those moments where I think, oh, I can't believe that happened. I would never choose that. But what am I going to do right now? What am I going to do right now? So what can I do right now in this moment to do this, to do like little by little? This concludes the first part of our interview with Lisa Valentine Clark. We will be back in the next episode with the rest of this interview. And the good news is we've had her back on the podcast for a totally separate interview where we talk about how to apply these same principles when there has been interpersonal betrayal and loss and grief. We're so grateful for Lisa and her incredible insights and her courage and her humor and just how she's showing up in the world, blessing so many lives. In the meantime, if you want more resources and support, you can visit fromcrisis2connection.com where we have a free guide on how to end marriage arguments. Along with past episodes of this podcast, and other great resources to help you strengthen your relationships. Thanks for listening every single week. We'll catch you in the next episode.